David D, everybody. Thank you, David. Take your time, fella. Thanks, Mark. Um, hi, everybody. Nice to see you all. Uh, my name is Dave, and um, normally I'd start with, you know, I'd say I'm a person in recovery, I'm an alcoholic, I'm cross-addicted, I'm a work in progress. Um, and I'm a fellow human being, really, trying to make sense of life. And um, for me, it's trying to live a sober life. And I like this idea, this, you know, this Tosnua, uh, which is Irish, it's, you know, kind of means new beginnings or beginning in you. And this is exactly what I'm doing. Um, I've just moved back to the west of Ireland, to a town called Galway. Um, quite traumatic circumstances. Um, luckily enough, I have a house here, which was rented, so I've been able to get it back. So I actually have my own house. And uh, what happened, um, my wife, Nicola, died in June of this year. And um, she died, uh, she had been diagnosed uh, last September with uh, bowel cancer, um, stage four bowel tumor. And uh, it was only discovered as a result of a hysterectomy. And the chemo didn't work. It was quite traumatic for her. She had two hospitalizations. So by Christmas of last year, she decided no more treatment and we got a couple of good months together. And then um, in the last week, Nikki, we managed to get a room in a hospice. So from last September, right through, it's like, it, it was tough going. Um, really tough going from you know, once talking to the surgeon after the hysterectomy, every time we engaged with the medical profession, it was like shit news, shit news, shit news. And each time it was, okay, what do we do? How do we do it? Where do we go? And um, it was heartbreaking. And it is heartbreaking. Because Nikki... Um, We've been together 16 years and we just married two years. And Nikki never saw me drink or take drugs. And I never took drink or drugs in that time. I, my first marriage, I destroyed with my drinking and drugging. And uh, I think of any of the things I've ever done in life. And, you know, I've done things, I've broken the law. But I think the worst thing I've done is to destroy the love of um, somebody, you know, a good woman. And in the end of the day, she just had to ask me to leave because uh, I, I wasn't capable or able to face up or willing to face up um, to how I was living my life and the effect that was having. So... Um, I'm very lucky that I 
worked hard over the years after this our split and divorce in rebuilding a friendship with my first wife. And um, she's actually been one of my great supports since I came back to Galway. She's been very helpful. And she affords me a respect that I, I'm very grateful for, considering what I did, considering how my lifestyle impacted on her, that after so many years, she had to ask me to leave the house. And uh, so that was the first house. <laughs> and uh, this house I'm in, which is not too far away, uh, I ended up somehow, you know, quite a good bullshitter. I managed to break my way into a mortgage to buy this house. And then after three years, I was in a process of the house was being taken back for me because I hadn't been paying my mortgage. Because my first priority was drinking and drugging. So losing houses, losing marriages, um, none of that brought me, none of that, it didn't register that I needed to do something here about my drinking and drugging. Um, once that idea came into my head, I was gone. And I didn't necessarily, because of, 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 you know, from an Irish scenario, with the pubs I drink in, it was quite easy. I had accounts in several pubs, so I didn't need money. I could just run up bills, and at some stage, I'd pay them back. And the same with dealers. I knew people who were, um, you know, I could arrange to get anything I wanted without needing the money. At some stage, I'd have to come up with the money. So it meant a pattern over decades of going on a serious bender, maybe several weeks, then having to re-engage with reality because physically and, and mentally, I, ju I just couldn't hack it anymore. So I had to get back. I had to get healthy to get back to work to end up to pay <laughs> off my debts. So I stepped between these worlds. I stepped between the ordinary world where everybody went to work and kind of pay their bills and had a, had a foothold in life. And then I'd step into this other world where it was like the nighttime world. It was a different, different, I, different ways of being in the world, different people different ways of doing things, in some cases dangerous. So um, at the end of my drinking, I again, I bullshitted on my way onto a business management course. I, I was training to be a manager. And in the state system in Ireland, because I had been on some kind of social welfare payment, I was being paid to be trained to be a manager. And um, my first package, my first payment from the state training agency, um, the tutor gave us two projects. I had two presentations to make on a Monday. And he said, I'm going to let you off. You don't have to come in tomorrow, Friday, because I know you got paid today and you'd like to go and 
have spent some money. So don't come in to the school tomorrow, but you have two presentations to do on Monday. And straight away, I knew what I was going to do. And I had a major one and a minor presentation. And you know what? I was going to dazzle this classroom with my brilliance. And I was so confident in my brilliance that I decided I'm going to go for a drink. And once I have a few drinks, I'll go back home and I'll start work on my presentation. And um, I remember the first one was to do, because I was growing herbs, I was going to present about the history of the laurel wreath and how it was used by emperors of Rome and what it meant. And I was going to have little boxes with different herbs in it so people were able to take out and physically hold the bay leaf. And I'd be able to talk about its culinary uses. I can't remember what the minor one was. But I thought, you know what? I've got Friday, Saturday and Sunday, so I don't have to worry about going home Thursday night. And Friday morning, it was like, you know, that was a really good night. I know I have the presentations. I've got plenty of time. I need to kind of come down a bit because I'm, I'm too high. I need to come down. And before I knew it, it was like, hey, you know, I still got most of Saturday and I got Sunday. And next thing it was, damn it, it's Sunday. I'm not going to be able to dazzle them with brilliance. I'm going to have to try and baffle them with bullshit. And on Monday, I didn't show up. I wasn't there. That was my rock bottom. That was when, you know, like Leonard Cohen said, you know, the light got in through the crack. And that was the first time then I went to my doctor and I said, Doc, I think I've got difficulties with alcohol. And I hadn't stopped drinking. That was day seven of continuous drinking. So he gave me a couple of Librium, said, go home, come back to me for two days. And I did. Um, and then he put me in contact with an alcohol treatment unit and I went in as a day patient. And that was that began the end of January 1999. And I haven't picked up a drink um, since then. It took me a couple of months later to kind of realize I had to deal more than just with alcohol. So I had to deal with the whole concept of addiction, how addictive my personality was. And that meant that any substance that would take me away from myself or get me high. And it began actually long before that. Uh, I had wanted to change how I felt since childhood. Um, and I remember, you know, as a child, I used to prevent myself from defecating. My stomach would go into cramps and then the cramps would pass. And that cycle, would, I, could, I could do it for a long time. And I was, I was trying to control something. I was trying to, you know, somehow change how I felt. But the pain, in a way, was exquisite. Uh, I got off on that. I, first time I got drunk, I was quite young because I had a father who used to bring me to a pub. 
because I had an iron deficiency and a glass of Guinness used to do you good. And the first time I got drunk, I had a few glasses of Guinness um, in this small pub called The Hole in the Wall uh, as my father was playing cards. And I remember going out into the yard where the toilets were and the whole thing started to spin. And I got this feeling of leaving my body. I got this feeling of being taken away. Something magical was happening. I got sick. It was scary. (laughs) But I remember this. And I spent an awful lot of time up to my 40s following that, wanting to escape from myself, wanting to get high. I used to call it escalator going up. So once I hopped on the escalator, I wasn't quite sure when I'd get off or how I'd get off. And um, so it it was from get-go, I drank alcoholically. There was no such thing as one or two. I never, I used to kind of borrow money from my grandmother or borrow money from relatives. And I hated, you know, sitting into a pub at maybe 15 and there were all these men and I watched them. I watched how they operated. I watched, you don't cause trouble. You take your drink, you sit down quietly. You look after yourself in the pub and once you become accepted, you can be let stay on for after hours. And then you were really in the club. And, every, you know, it was a bit like that Cheers program. You know, everybody knew your name. You kind of got known. It was comfortable. And I was given this magical elixir, you know, and it just took me away. It was wonderful. Um, I was a sportsman. Um, I had played rugby for my province as a schoolboy. I was under the wing of a very serious rugby player. And I, that was really beginning. That was at 17, 18. And I reneged on that. I, I, I didn't take it up because the drink was more important. Um, I, I, I could have gone on and really played. I, I, I actually was at that point where I was kind of a player of the year in the club and they wanted to develop me as a, as a rugby player. And I reneged on it. I was also at the time a scoutmaster, one of the youngest scoutmasters in Ireland. And um, I pulled out of that. You know, I love scouting. Um, and then, you know, it was... Um, into early 20s and I met my first wife. We didn't get married. We, you know, Anne got pregnant. Luke was born. Then afterwards, Keen. And um, I just continued on. I, 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 I didn't change. I didn't grow up. I didn't take on the responsibility of being a father. Um, I often would drink the rent money. Um, I remember one time 
Uh, there's a local market, a kind of a farmer's market in, in the town here on a Saturday. And I was, you know, had been drinking all morning and I was walking through the market and one of the traders, he somehow or another dropped his takings. He was in an envelope and I picked it up and I went in the opposite direction. And I felt great because now I had the money to pay the rent and I didn't have to apologize or explain myself to my wife. So, you know, that's the kind of, that's where I ended up being, uh, what I ended up being the type of person that, um, you know, I, I take money, I'd rob you. I take money from you. And um, so with my, when I got to that point of um, realizing, shit, I'm, I'm in trouble here. And I got into my first AA meeting. And suddenly there were people talking about, um, you know, fulfilling their dreams. I, I never, I never had a dream to fulfill. I never had ambition. There were people I thought that were dead, actually, and I saw them in meetings. I said, "Geez, I thought you were dead." I said, "No, no, we just stopped drinking. We stopped." Um, and uh, it was traditionally AA, and there was quite a lot of there I didn't really want to understand. But the one thing I I heard people telling me was. You don't have to drink. You can have a different life. We've got certain ways of looking at life that's a bit different to the way you used to do it, but there's the possibility of transformation. And um, here's what we suggest you do. You know, the first thing is, you know, get 90 meetings in 90 days. It gives yourself a bit of a foundation to decide whether or not you want to stay in AA. And then we've got steps. We've got a process of looking at yourself and beginning to change. And I remember hearing somewhat, you know, that it was like the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I hung on to that. I thought, okay, I want to stop drinking. I don't know what's ahead of me, but I can't keep doing what I have been doing, so I need to stop it. Because I'm just a complete mess. I'm, I was very close to committing suicide. I really wanted, I thought, I, I couldn't see any way of living my life. I couldn't see any way of keeping going. And, um, you know, my house was being repossessed. I had no work. I had no self-respect. Severely depressed. That's because of my drinking. <laughs> And I thought, oh, how do I get out of here? And my, my last roll of advice was this business management course. And I fucked that up. And it was like, I've no place left. I've no place left to go. I, I, uh, there's no option. There's no other show in town for me. And while I was engaging with the alcohol and drug unit, I looked up the paper and I thought, okay, there's AA meetings. I walked up the stairs of this building went to the wrong room, walked back out into the street to head to a pub and realised, I can't do this anymore. So I came back in and walked up to the same staircase and went into another room. And that was my first meeting. And somebody, the only person I knew in AA happened to be, met me coming in the door. 
And she said, hi, Dave. Um, you're welcome. We were wondering when you'd get here. And like, suddenly I take notice of that and I think, fuck, what she mean? And it was the first instance of what I call um, AA fucking with my head. You know, it was like, well, what do you mean by this? I kind of suddenly take notice. They were waiting for me. Is there a list here? Are these people going around kind of scrutinizing people? So afterwards, Martina told me what she meant by it. I understood, but I was, I parked up and um, I began to talk about myself the same way that everybody else was. I didn't take the God thing too seriously, but I thought, look, if it meant that I have to go up to, there's a place in Galway called Air Square, which is the central of the town. If I had, if they told me I had to go up to Air Square and get a bunch of roses, stick them in my ass and rotate anti-clockwise six times to stay sober, I'll give it a shot. You know, if they want to talk about God, if they want to talk about higher powers, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. But um, I hung on to that idea that the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. So that, that desire for me, I suddenly started looking at the 12 steps of what was going on in that meeting. That was coming from the heart. This wasn't a mental exercise. This, to me now, was going to be a heart-based exercise. Because, you know... If, if I start thinking about things, if I start my processing, I want to drink or a drug. That's how I dealt with life. I can't do that anymore. I have to listen to a different intelligence. This idea of something outside of me, beyond me, all powerful, I can't hack that. That's just too big for me. Yeah, I can understand the idea of my heart intelligence, my heart wanting to die. It's a, a, a different way of speaking. So that began, that began my process of change. And it's been slow and it's been gradual. And, you know, the first time I looked at the fourth step, it was in a very loving way, taking a mirror and holding it to me. And somehow beginning a process of trying to get real and honest about myself. I've done several fourth steps. I mean, the first time I talked to the counsellors in the addiction centre, I modified my intake of drink and drugs because I thought if it was too much, they'd throw me out. So I was now, I, I thought, okay, I have to modify. I have to manipulate. This is my people pleasing. This is my, I'll give you what you want. I'll tell you what you need and I'll modify it as long as I get from you what I need. I think these guys knew, you know. They give me a handle, uh, rebel without a clue. <laughs> um, what are the, the, the dick, dick the, I used to call them um, uh, Jack and Jill. There was Jack and Joe, I used to call them. They were a great double act, hard cop, sock cop. And um, Jack became my mentor. He actually became my hero. And I, you know, within, um, uh, I, I, you know, I was three or four months sober, still quite vulnerable. And I found myself at a situation where I was at a funeral. 
outside my hometown in the company of people I used to use with and I used drugs again. And I kept using them for a couple of months while still going to meetings. Eventually, I realized it didn't feel right. It wasn't right. And I had to get clean about it. I had to tell somebody. I had to be honest. I couldn't live this way anymore. So I went up, I went back to Jack and I said, Jack, I have to, I have to confess here. You know, I've been using drugs. I fecked up. He, you know, he called me a fecked idiot. <laughs> and uh, he says, okay, I'm going to put you on anti-booze for a couple of months and I'm going to put you on 24-hour notice so that within that 24 hours, I'm going to give you a call and you have to come here to give me a urine sample within the two hours I specify. And um, after a couple of months, you know, I, I stuck with it. I had this mentor. I said, okay, this guy is a professional. He knows what he's doing. I can trust him. I can trust him with what he's telling me that I have to do. And I began to cultivate friendships with people that I thought I can trust these people within AA. And they, they, they offer me the guidance of telling me what they did in their lives and the difference it made for them. And how they managed to repair their lives repair in some cases their marriage but for me my marriage was irreparable um and i thought you know jack said to me dave you, you know you've got a reasonable mind why don't you go to university for yourself so um i thought hey up i take myself off to university keeps me off the streets and uh again within the irish system uh, it was quite well that I was paid to go to university. I was given a kind of an allowance, a weekly allowance, and I had my fees paid. So uh, I did the longest course possible, which was five years. And um, I also managed, in the meantime, I got a year in Malta. I also won a scholarship to go to Boston College in Massachusetts. But uh, I gave that back to go to Malta instead because I wanted to learn how to dive. And I didn't like the idea of minus 15 degrees in fucking Boston in January, where in Malta I could be in flip-flops. And I was also studying the classical world because I, I was fascinated with the Greek myths. So now I was being paid to go off and study all about the Greek and Roman world and about their gods and the lunatic gods they had and the temples that were built, you know, their armies, the Roman army, you know, this is big boy stuff, really serious. So I went off to Malta, you know, the Maltese temples predate the pyramids. They're, they're the oldest freestanding stone structures in the world. And there were guys who did major excavations who were teaching that year I was there. And I was given access and insight, which was unbelievable. I went to Libya, I went to Tunisia, I went to Sicily. Um, uh, my first year or two in university was horrendous because I was full of fear. Uh, absolutely. I used to call it the squeeze like exams and deadlines and everything, all this, this stuff that was going out of me was squeezed and up comes the fear. 
I had fear of exams, fear of failure. Uh, utter perfectionist. I had to, I have to get uh, an A plus. I have to get a distinction. Nothing else is acceptable. Put myself under horrendous pressure, and um, I had to deal with that. That wasn't easy, and I got help, and I got back from Malta, and um, I make a decision as a child. And as a young person in Irish education, I was told I was stupid. I was part of a classroom that was divided. There was the half of the classroom that that was teachable and the half of the classroom that was unteachable because we were too stupid. And I was in the half of the classroom that was too stupid. I was ridiculed by my teachers. I was told the best I could aspire to would be to sweeping the streets. Huge amounts of fear and an awful lot of physical punishment. So my drinking, that drinking and drug taking, in some ways is a reaction to the complete atmosphere of fear that I grew up as a child in. It was a very fearful and dangerous place for a child. I didn't know in my childhood who in the adult world, particularly from the point of view of teachers or my father, would decide that somehow or another I had um, transgressed and that I needed to be punished. And that punishment was a lesson. The pain was going to be a lesson in order to force me to change how I how I was and how I was interacting in the world, particularly with the adult world. So um, it was a, a horrendous control thing. And um, I got to come back to Galway to do my degree. And I thought, right, for the first time, I've, I've, I've got some control here now in my life. And there's something I want. I want to be the top and the best in my class. And it's attainable. I can do it. And I decided that I was going to work to be that. If I got it, great. If I didn't, it doesn't matter. I had now put in the work. I had a goal. I wanted to be the best, the top, I was going to go for it. I was going to go for it joyfully. That was my goal. And I got it. I got what's called, the, it was a prize called the Margaret Healy Prize for the top marks. And so it was a double first I got. And um, I thought, yeah, um, I, 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 can, I can live in this world. I, I, can, I can function in this academic world. Still didn't feel fully um, believing in myself or, or believing that I belonged, but I was getting really positive feedback. I was, there were people saying, Dave, you know, we'd like you to develop. We'd like you to continue on here. We'd like you, would you be prepared to use your experience and your knowledge with helping some other students? And we'd pay you for it. Would you, could you run some tutorials for us? 
because um, you're very good with people, you're very good with students, and you have an understanding of the process. And we'd like you to consider doing the postgraduate work. And uh, I thought, yeah, why not? You know, I was getting the love. <laughs> of course I was going to respond. And uh, I had started, I'd done my master's, and I was in the process of beginning to do a doctorate, PhD, and uh, tragedy struck. My eldest son, Luke, died uh, of a drug overdose. Uh, within a three-week period, Aidan, who was my sponsor, my NA sponsor, but also my housemate, he'd been living with me for a number of years. He died in a motorbike crash. Uh, Luke, my son, died, and my uncle died. And suddenly, my world is completely upturned. This, this is what Luke is. This, this isn't in the script. What, what the fuck is this? This isn't supposed to happen. And. Um, it's like one of those, like, this is the worst thing that can happen as a parent. You know, this isn't supposed to happen. And uh, I had to negotiate all that period and thinking, okay, first, first principles. What's the first principles, Dave? Where do I operate out of here? I mean, when I went to the house where Luke died and there was the guys there and the dealers and I kind of got to know them, well, I got to, I wanted to take my phone out to take a photograph of them because I thought, I'm going to deal with these fuckers. Somebody's going to pay for this. You know? Um, and it was like, no, Dave, that doesn't work. It's not going to work here. It's not going to bring Luke back. You can't do anything that's going to harm yourself or make things worse. So what's the first principle? And I had to go back. You know, it was now the AA program. The first principle is my primary purpose is to stay sober. So, yes, I might have had a goal of getting the highest marks, of transforming that image of myself and this feeling of myself from being stupid to being, no, I'm not stupid, actually, I'm reasonably smart. Being able to go back to the school I was in and go into the, 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 um, the staff room and walk up to one of those teachers and say, there's my results. You know, you were wrong. And walked out again. So now I had to do this for me. I couldn't engage I had to start thinking think, think, think what's the second think about so the first thing is I'm going to take care of these guys the second one is hang on Dave this is why it's in red think about this what are the consequences run this on where does it lead you But I want to, no, you can't because there's a different way of being in the world now. And this is, this is about, sobriety is about control and it's about choice. It's about choosing how to live. 
how do I want to live? And um, I thought, well, I, you know, the, 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 straight off, there's no drink, there's no drugs. I'm going to get this. Um, this, this is this is now something new in my life. Grief has entered my life. I, I have lost my beautiful son. And I'm going to have this presence. And the presence is, is the absence of Luke. I, my love doesn't change. I love the guy. I still love him today. But he's no longer with me. And uh, I went through two years of every night going to his grave and lighting a candle. And then I had to begin the process of slowly letting go. Luke was laid out in the coffin and his partner told me that she was pregnant. And um, then Luke had died in May and his daughters, Kayla and Kelsey, who are identical twins, they were born in November. So they were 15 this year. And... um, Nikki and myself, you know, there was a whole wraparound around Carmel to help her deal with the loss of Luke and also the fact that she had, you know, she had a very difficult pregnancy. The twins, the girls had 20 twin transfusion syndrome. So it was a very difficult pregnancy. And to help her, so I used to have the girls here, used to come here to this house and Nikki would help me and we'd have them from, you know, um, from four months. You know, I, I baptized them in the River Carrow myself. You know, not a religious baptism, but I thought, okay, that this is the river. It's called Golov. It's after supposedly after this princess who drowned in the river. This is how I'm going to. I'm dedicating my two granddaughters to the River of Life. You know, because that's what I'm in now. I'm in the River of Life. I'm in the flow. I'm, I'm not running away from anything. I'm here to face it. I don't want this shit, but this is what I have now. And, you know, I, 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 my life changed. Um, I, I never finished my PhD. And um, uh, I stayed on working there for a couple of years. And then myself and Nikki, we went off to Australia, you know. And uh, we were I loved it. We were placed Sydney, the northern beaches, and we were. I got a five-year work visa. I was there for a couple of years, and, and we had to come back. We were going to go back there and live our lives. We were going to create a new life for ourselves in New Zealand, and we came back here to arrange for our houses to be let out. And Nikki's mum dropped dead, and we decided we'd change our program and Nikki was going back and forth to help her her dad and then she asked me would I come with her to the UK to help her look after her dad and I thought of course love you know you help me look after my granddaughters you know wherever you go I go wherever you go that's my home you know because I have something precious now I have, I have you. I love you to bits. You're my best friend. It doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter what we have. We have each other. And we went to live in her dad's house. 
look after her dad and did that for the last eight years. And, you know, um, towards the end of uh, Nikki's sickness or illness, um, her brother arrived back from, um, uh, he was in Washington, D.C. And um, I don't think, well, whether he disliked me or liked me or not is immaterial, but tensions began to grow. It was quite a tense period anyway because, you know, Nikki was dying of cancer. You know, it, it was the last couple of months. And um, it became very well, doc- well, it, it, it was signposted quite strongly that I wasn't welcome anymore in the house after Nikki dying. They really wanted me gone. That began to happen even before Nikki died. So I kind of, I left the house uh, I stayed with another friend, a member in the same village until October. And uh, the company I'd been working for, but I hadn't been working since September because I was looking after Nikki. They let me go. They said, you know, so my, you know, my, my, my wife, my best friend, my home, my work, gone. And I'm back to, um, uh, what's going on here? What the fuck? (laughs) What's this? (laughs) You know? And uh, I got to go back to the same thing. What's my primary purpose? I got to stay sober. And from the point of view of, you know, I'm okay now talking. It's like there's somebody else. This is how I feel. There's somebody else here doing this. There's a part of Dave that's doing this. But there's another part of me, someplace, you know, that's not here right now. That's kind of shut down, you know. And that comes up in private. That's the grieving Dave. That's the Dave that thinks, fuck that there's a feeling of, I don't, I don't want this. I can't hack this. You know, I haven't been on my own in 16 years. The future, my, the future I had planned with Nikki, what we were going to, that's gone. This woman my, that sits beside me and walked, we loved walking, we did so much together, she's gone. And I've I, I, I've now got to, you know, for me, every day I've got to do one thing. I've got to accomplish one thing. I've got to have an anchor in each day to allows me to get to the next thing. So I might be cut a bush or leave out my bins for rubbish or go pay a bill or go do something. And I get to my online meetings. I was so lucky before COVID, just after COVID struck, that I got in with a group called so- uh, Sober Without God, uh, based on Jeffrey Munn's book. And my recovery has taken on a completely and profound new course. I, I love it. And again, it's something I learned in the old AA. You know, when the going gets tough for me, 
try help working with other alcoholics. So one of the things I noticed with our group was a lot of people were struggling. And I said, look, let's just organize an extra meeting on a Thursday night. It's a check-in meeting. It means there's a second night of the group. You just, we'll just go online. We'll have a chat. Tell us how you're coping. We'll see how we can help you. Do we have a WhatsApp group? Send the message out there. I'm in trouble. I need help. I've had to do it. And that's how I keep going. Tomorrow morning, I could be back being feeling suicidal. Or something during the day will happen. A smell, a memory, something will happen. And the oscillation in my life is just huge. And um, what keeps me going is knowing that I have, I had known, I was lucky to have known Nikki. I was lucky to have loved her and I was lucky to have been loved by her. And um, I don't know what's ahead of me. I mean, when I got sober, I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd get to the university. I never thought I'd meet somebody like Nikki. I never thought I'd be loved the way I was loved by Nikki. So I don't know what's ahead of me. The only thing I know is that I've got a purpose today. My purpose is to stay sober. It's simple. I get to this meeting. You guys have had the, 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 the horrendous task of having to listen to me for nearly an hour. <laughs> and not one of you have interrupted. Not one of you have said, oh, for fuck's sake, Dave, get a grip, get a life, move on. You're not right. You know, you'd all been so respectful. You've given me the love. So that, that's what I have to have each day. I look for the love, you know, and that's AA for me, you know. The AA is love-based program because it's allowed me to love me. It's allowed me to come back to my heart. And it's allowed me to be really, really vulnerable. Because in my vulnerability, I find my strength. And I just keep going. And I'm going to be 25 years the end of January, 25 years sober. I'm going to fucking make that. I'm going to be 25 years sober. The end of January, you know, and that's... Not much I can put. I can't put a big sign on my window saying, hey, I'm 25 years sober. But it's one of the best. It's the best thing I've ever done apart from, you know, loving this beautiful woman. Um, and I pissed off at her that she left me, actually. But that's, you know, that's for a grief session. <laughs> this is even in my agony. I'm here to celebrate my sobriety. Even in my pain, I'm here to say I would rather be sober than I love my sobriety. And I couldn't do it without you. I can't do it on my own. I need the help. I need the love. And I'm going to shut up now because I've never talked this long. I mean, if I was at a standard meeting, there'd be a secretary pulling their fucking hair out, trying to get me to shut up. 
people will be getting up and leaving. <laughs> so now, Mark, it's all your fault. Thanks, guys. <laughs>